to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. And this morning, we will complete uh, a section begun in verse 1 through 13, dealing with the sin of partiality. I'd like to begin our time by reading the first 13 verses of James chapter 2. With a word of prayer, we'll begin. You'll find the, the notes in the bulletin. You'll find the text on the back of the notes if you don't have a Bible. So, James chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you're showing partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said... Do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So, speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Lord God, as we come to this text... I pray that you would help us to see clearly the evil that is done in the sin of partiality. You might expose where in our hearts, our minds, our lives, we may be guilty of this. That you would give us a sincere devotion to you that knows no partiality. That we would be those who do mercy, knowing that mercy triumphs over judgment. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you'll remember, the sin of partiality is a, is a word that James brings over straight from the Hebrew. It's a Hebrewism. Literally, it means to receive a face, and with implication, to receive a face preferentially, with favor, to view the external appearance. It's quoted in the Old Testament in legal sections, where we'll see in Leviticus 18, you're not to show partiality to the poor or deference to the great, but you judge with righteous judgment. James illustrates how this might take place in a Christian gathering in the first um, few verses. And then he gives two strong reasons why we as Christians, as we hold the faith of the Lord of glory, ought not 
to show the sin of partiality. The first is in verse 5. Partiality against the poor and in favor of the rich contradicts God's regard for the poor. And that's what he points out. Don't you realize the great favor, the great honor, the riches of faith, inheritance of a kingdom that God has given to the poor? So when you despise and dishonor the poor, you contradict God's own attitude towards them. That's his first argument. The second argument is that it is nonsensical from a simply practical and pragmatic sense, since the rich are the ones who are oppressing you. Why would you treat favorably a class of people who by and large are the ones responsible for dragging you into courts, blaspheming the name by which you are called? Not without exception, but by and large, the ones doing the oppressing have wealth and power. So it doesn't make any sense to favor them. So on the one hand, you should favor the poor because God favors the poor. On the other hand, you have no real practical reason to favor the rich because they're your enemies. They're opposed to you by and large. Those are his first two arguments against partiality in the assembly of the saints. He's going to bring forward one more argument, and it's probably his most developed and his most significant. And that is that partiality violates the royal law. Partiality violates the royal law. Let's read. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So point number one, the royal law prohibits partiality. The royal law prohibits partiality. Now, we're going to have to pause here for a moment and deal with uh, a theological question about the nature of law. Because in order for us to get James's argument, we need to understand what law he's talking about and what our relationship is to it. I'm sure most of you here know the Apostle Paul has declared we're not under law, we're under grace. In, in Ephesians, we're talking about how he abolished the law of commandments and ordinances, nailing them to the cross. So what law is James talking about? And why does he call it royal? Well, one of the links in his line of thinking is seen back in verse 5. My beloved brothers, has God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? The word for kingdom is a cognate with the adjective royal. It's really kingly. In one sense, if we translated the kingly law and the kingdom, you'd see the the similar use of terms. In Greek, it's, it's clear. They're heirs of the kingdom, and this is the kingly law. That's one line of thought. So we're talking about a kingdom. I think you'll also see that James has got one referent for what he uses a number of terms for. Here, verse 8, it's the royal law. But down in verse 12, it's the law of liberty. I think he means the same thing. If you look back in chapter 1, verse 25... The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty. So it's the perfect law, it's the law of liberty, it's the royal or kingly law. Look back in 118. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. I would argue that James is not talking about different things. The word of truth, the perfect law, the law of liberty, the royal law, he's, he's dealing with one 
thing. I believe in one thing only. What he simply calls the word in verse 22. And so we've got to deal with the issue as, as believers. His whole argument's based upon our relationship to something he calls the royal or perfect law. We've got, we got to think through what is that relationship. Perhaps you're not even aware you're, you have a relationship to a law. It gets worse than that, though, because look at the end of our passage, verse 12. <clears throat> so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So James, at least in some sense, tells us we are headed for believers, my brothers and sisters, a judgment under something he can call law. How do we make sense of that, given some of the things the Apostle Paul has to say? So keep your thumb here. We're going to take a little sidestep for a minute, and we're going to go to Galatians chapter 5. Let's go to Galatians chapter 5. Let's take a look at one of those passages where Paul talks about how we're freed from law, and then I'll try to tell you how I make sense of this. Galatians chapter 5. Excuse me. We'll pick it up in verse 16. And we're going to read through the chapter division that, of course, Paul never wrote. He never wrote chapter 6. And we're going to read from 516 to 6.2. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Now, there's a clear statement. The Apostle Paul, if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Paul isn't trying to make a comprehensive and exhaustive list. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Which is another way of saying, if you walk by the Spirit, you're not under law. If you're walking in the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, there is no law against this. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keeping watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted... Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, my point is simply this. Paul can say quite clearly, you're not under law. Against this, there is no law. And still speak about us desiring to and seeking to fulfill something else he calls law. So even as Paul makes these declarations about how the law has been abolished and you're not under the law, that doesn't mean Paul doesn't have categories to speak about us relating to a law. Now, he calls it the law of Christ. So here's, here's, I'll give you what I think the answer is. The royal law. I think the royal law means the law given by King Jesus. 
the law given by King Jesus. So Jesus comes and he says, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them, to be what they've pointed to. And then he gives out his ethical teaching. And Jesus' teaching, I believe, wish we had an ABF so I could dig into this, but in two weeks, you can ask Pastor Daniel all your questions because I'll be on vacation and he will be happy to answer them. Um, that Jesus' ethic and his demands for his disciples are in perfect keeping with all the values of the Mosaic Law. They're in perfect keeping with everything in the Law of Moses, yet I believe they are distinct from the Law of Moses. I'll give you one example. You can go to Deuteronomy, and you can read about how to and how not to make oaths. And what Deuteronomy tells you is when you make your oaths, you will swear by the God whose character is true. You won't swear by your gold. You won't swear by your belongings. You swear by Yahweh the one who is true. Now, Jesus comes along, and he too cares greatly about honesty, but he says, don't swear at all. In both the Mosaic utterance and in Jesus' utterance, you have a continuous, constant value for integrity and honesty, and yet the practical application changes. The same thing, I think, happens with the fourth commandment and the Sabbath-keeping. Um, we are not bound to keep one day in seven Our Sabbath rest is in Christ. This is a short treatment on a a big topic. But what I'm saying is Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, which is what James has largely been following, is not, I do not believe, him just reapplying, reteaching Moses. As if everything Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, you ought to have been able to figure out on your own with the law of Moses. I don't think that's going on at all. I don't think that works. And I think it's precisely this understanding of the law of Moses as it comes into the new covenant through King Jesus, as he applies it to his people that James is referring to. To turn to one other passage with me, go to 1 Corinthians 9. Let me show you Paul again. And I'm using Paul because Paul's negative statements about the law of Moses are probably going to give the hardest time in reconciling what James is saying. And starting next Sunday, when Pastor Daniel teaches through faith and works, you know that Luther, when he read James, having first read Paul, struggled with reconciling the two. Well, that apparent difficulty, and I say it's only apparent, begins actually earlier than verse 14. It begins even here in his use of law. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, let me, let me show you in Pauline categories this. Verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a slave to all, that I may win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. Now, that's interesting right there, because Paul's Jewish. It's the tribe of Benjamin. But he becomes, as a Jew, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself Under the law. So there's another clear Pauline statement. I'm not under the law of Moses. The law of Moses has no claim on me directly. I'm not under the law. That I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Now look at this. Not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ. 
The law of Christ is Paul's category for some sense, some category of obligation and rule that is distinct from the law of Moses. In this one paragraph, Paul insists, I am not under the law, but I'm not without law. I'm under the law of Christ. So what Paul calls the law of Christ, I'm saying is what James is referring to by the royal or kingly law. It makes sense. King Jesus, King Messiah has come and he has issued an ethic for his people. And we are obliged to keep that. And on this point, Jesus himself is quite clear. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. King Jesus doesn't have suggestions. King Jesus doesn't have recommendations. King Jesus has commandments for his subjects, which is another way of saying law. It's a type of law. It's different. We're going to look at the difference in a minute. But make no mistake, as a New Covenant Christian, there is an obligation to an ethical standard, codes of conduct, to which we are beholding. The royal law, the law given by King Jesus, which is distinct from the law of Moses. So point number two, freed from the law of Moses, we are under the law of Christ. Freed. From the law of Moses, we are under the law of Christ. We are obligated to obey King Jesus or to strive to obey King Jesus. Jesus makes that clear and and Paul makes that clear. I'll read you a few more passages that make this clear. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. By this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, what's the mark of a Christian? How do you identify a Christian? And a non-Christian, by this we know that we come to know him. If we keep his commandments, the one who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. We are beholding to an ethical standard, Christ's teachings, not to receive a favor. I think this is the primary distinction between the law of Christ and the law of Moses. The law of Christ is for redeemed, forgiven sons and daughters to live out. We model our faith. We demonstrate our faith as we try to keep Christ's commandments. We don't earn our acceptance. We don't earn forgiveness. It's already been given to us. And yet, it is not optional. It's not something for super-Christians. The one who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. It's pretty clear teaching from God's word. So we want to make this clear. It's distinct from the law of Moses. It's different. It's it's as different as an exoskeleton like a beetle has is from an endoskeleton that you and I have, which is internalized. There's a lot to be said here, but I need to move on. Now, one of the reasons why I believe this is what James is referring to is where he looks to for this royal law. He cites the scripture. According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is quoting Leviticus 18. Turn there. You'll remember that the prohibition against partiality is also found in Leviticus 18. And you may also remember that our Lord and Savior, King Jesus, when he was asked what the first and second greatest commandments were, quoted Leviticus 18. I believe James calls this the kingly or royal law because when the king was asked what his ethical standard was, it was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. And the second is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. 
We've already seen loving God in verse 5 is a kingdom that God promises to those who love him and to those who love their neighbor as their self. Leviticus 19. I'm going to start in verse 15 and read through verse 18. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial, Hebrew, literally, you shall not receive a face of the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. Now, again, I'll point out, partiality either way is injustice. Even as the Bible recognizes that the, the rich and the powerful have an opportunity to put their thumb on the scale and bribe and influence judges, any attempt to try to put our thumb on the other side and counterbalance in favor of the poor is equally unjust. Both favoring the poor and the rich are forbidden. It is justice, only justice we are to pursue. You shall do no injustice. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. There's the introduction to that word neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. Lest you incur sin because of him, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Here's your blank. This is the second greatest commandment. And I want you to notice that it sits directly next to warnings against partiality. You see the unification of James's thought? Why, when he's talking about partiality, does he think about the commandment to love your neighbor? Because it's sitting in context right next to it. What's the implication? One of the ways you don't love your neighbor is by showing partiality. And because King Jesus centered his human ethic horizontally on this commandment. I mean, it's interesting that Jesus' first and second greatest commandments don't come directly out of the Ten Commandments, do they? They don't. I mean, they, they, they all harmonize. There's no conflict. But he doesn't quote one of the Ten Commandments. He quotes Leviticus 18. quotes Deuteronomy 6. So King Jesus centers his horizontal ethic of how we are to treat each other in Leviticus 18 and the law of love, the royal law, the law of liberty, the law that we're now freed to follow in Christ. So... To summarize what James has said, we've given our long aside, he says this. Here's a third reason why we must not show partiality. By, by the way, another word for partiality could be prejudice, to prejudge um, the, an idea. Prejudice, partiality. The example James uses is of, of economics, wealth and poverty. It could just as easily be cultural. It could just as easily be racial. It could just as easily be geographical. Any of these external things. Appearance-based things. We're not to play favorites along those lines. And if we fulfill the royal law, we are doing good. We're do-gooders. We're working good. We're doing well. But if you show partiality, what happens now? Now he's going to show us how partiality interacts with that law that we're under, the law of Christ. If you show partiality, you are working sin. The blank I put there is working. Back in James, I know your ESV says, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin. The reason I want to emphasize working 
is because, of course, the discussion that's about to happen, starting in verse 14 through the end of the chapter, with faith and works. James is already connecting thoughts. You're workmen of sin. You've got works. You sure do have works. They're sin works, he says. You're working sin. And you're convicted by the law as a transgressor. The reason I have to emphasize this reality of us relating to a law principle is James is assuming the logic of the argument is you don't want to commit sin and you don't want to be convicted by the law as a transgressor. And that argument will have no power on you if you're not even aware of a law principle to which you are accountable. So James is saying there's a very real possibility, my brothers, that if you play favorites... You honor one, you dishonor the other, purely an external appearance. You will be guilty of the law and become a transgressor of the law. And the assumption is we don't want to do that. But if you don't even think that's a conceptual possibility, because I'm not under law but under grace, then this argument's going to fall flat for you. Yes, you're not under the law of Moses. He's not talking about the law of Moses. He's talking about the royal law. He's talking about the law of liberty, the perfect law. And we are accountable to that. And we can be convicted by that and pronounced lawbreakers by that. that. That's the clear argument here. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. There's an absolute standard to which we are to model our lives. It's different than the law of Moses. It's a freeing law. It's a law of liberty, it's a perfect law, it's a kingly law. But make no mistake, it's a real standard. It gives real judgment. Now, where, Paul, where, where James I mean, takes his argument next is a little strange. The point he makes seems obvious. I want us to wonder why he needs to make it. I can imagine, perhaps, that James is taking his argument to the next step, anticipating that people might say something like, surely it can't be that big of a deal, James, Surely, we who are obeying Christ in so many areas of our life, cut us some slack, James. It's just seating assignments. Maybe that's what's going on. But he wants to deepen their guilt and their culpability greater. What what seems clear is this. He's concerned his readers will not fully grasp the wickedness of sin, particularly the sin of partiality. I'm guessing if you showed up here this Sunday, this morning, and, and you were to, someone to ask you, pull you outside, name some of the great evil sins, partiality probably wouldn't be on your list. It's just not one of the sins we tend to think about much. We don't write about much. We don't write books about much. And so James wants us to see how black and how dark and how deep and how wicked is this sin. So he takes it a step further. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now notice in verse 10, he shifts the person he's speaking to. Verse 8 is you. He's talking to a group of people, you all. Verse 10 is whoever. This is an aphorism. This is a truism. This is something that's just generally known to be true. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Okay? And your point here, point number two, the royal law, as all law is, is a unified whole. The royal law is a unified whole. 
We're going to get the principle, the example, and the rationale. The principle is pretty straightforward. To break any part of the law breaks the whole. Paul says this elsewhere. Jesus says this elsewhere. And yet, it's amazing how many people I talk to, in evangelism in particular, where they don't believe this. Anytime someone tries to justify their sins by all the good things they do, they're treating the law as if it's not unified. And we get this. We don't, we don't really take seriously pleas of defense from people who admit they've committed the murder, but I've never robbed a bank. I've never committed forgery. I've never sold foreign secrets. I've, so what? But look at all these laws I've kept. doesn't matter. You broke this law because the law is a unified whole. The principle to break any part of the law breaks the whole. You can't defend or excuse or explain one lawlessness over here by all these law keepings over here. And again, we've got to sort of reconstruct backwards what James is dealing with. But perhaps Christians are saying, we're being faithful in so many areas, James. You're being a little nitpicky about how we do our seating assignments. Cut us some slack. Even if it is wrong, it can't be a big deal. James, no, 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 no. You're breaking the whole law of Christ. You're breaking the whole royal law when you do this. Do you, do you understand? You're, you're lawbreakers and transgressors if you're willfully doing this. That's his point. So he uses the example from the Ten Commandments. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. The example. I love in his example, adultery is considered worse than murder. I only murdered. It's not like I committed adultery. It's what the person's saying. And he recognized we don't let murderers free with a defense of they've been faithful to their wives or husbands. Right? That we never don't let people free for that. That same logic then must be something James is possibly anticipating. No, you've broken the whole thing. But I want you to notice the rationale here. The rationale is personal. The language says, for he who said, and this is what it really boils down to, is when you, and the key here is willingly. Part of what makes this difficult is James is addressing someone who's stubbornly not wanting to accept this. It can't be that big of a deal, James. It can't be that big of a problem. Someone who, who wants to hold on to their partiality and think it's a small issue. And James is saying, no, no, no. If you're doing that, you're breaking the whole law. You're a transgressor. You're a lawbreaker. Because the same person gave both commandments. And I'm going to try to illustrate this. With my children, if I, if I tell my son to do something, I say, son, I want you to go give your mother a hand or go give Grant a hand. If he turns to me and says no, at that point, it really doesn't matter what the particular command I gave him was. What's on the table now is our relationship. Right? You get that. What? No, don't tell me what to do. The issue stopped being the shovel the grand needed, the floor Serena needed swept. Yes, I dropped the infinitive, Mom. And, and it becomes, what do you think our relationship is? Are, are you not willing to be a son to me as your father? Right? The, the relationship is what's in question. When any of my children look at me and say, No. That's James's argument here. He who said, the one said the other. So when you look and say no on partiality, you're saying no to the same he, the same one who gave the law. 
It's defiance to him. You're a rebel against him, regardless of which particular law you say no to. That's, that's the argument. It's, it's, it's personal. Which means then, rationale, willful, key being willful, willful partial obedience is 100% disobedience. Willful partial obedience is 100% disobedience. Keep being willful. If you're trying, if you're aiming for full obedience and you fall short, that's a different story altogether. But think of Saul. Think of Saul when Samuel told him to kill the Amalekites and lay them out of destruction, spare no one, kill their animals. What percentage of that commandment did Saul keep? He only spared Agag, and he only spared the best of the sheep and the animals. I think if you were to grade him percentage-wise... What percentage of what the Lord God told him to do did he do? You got to give him like 80 or 90%, right? I mean, an A or B rating. But Saul intentionally and willfully moved the mark. It wasn't as though he tried to do what the Lord said and failed. He willfully intentionally chose to do less than God told him to do. And Samuel tells him rebellion is the sin of witchcraft. It's, it's total disobedience. It's not, well, he did most of what I asked you to do, Paul. Saul. Willful, partial obedience is 100% disobedience. Jesus makes the same relational argument in Luke 6.46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? If you're willing to look at King Jesus in any era, say, yeah, I don't think so. Is he really your Lord? Are you really his subject? Is he really your king? If you're willing to say no in any one particular area, that becomes into question in the same way that one of my children is saying, nah, not going to do that, comes into question what our relationship is. Who, who do you think you are? Who do you think I am? What do you think is our relationship? The personal nature of the lawgiver. Um, ter- turn to Matthew 7, and keep your finger there, because we're going to look at one or two other passages in Matthew before we finish our time here this morning. And uh, I want you to see the same rationale, the same logic here. You know that's that frightening passage at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Pick it up in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven on that day. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day I will, many will say, Lord, Lord. They may not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now notice something here. James, Jesus is not saying we're saved by works. It's the relationship that matters. The declaration is, I didn't know you. We didn't have that relationship. The proof of that is their lawless lives. You were never a son to me. I was never a father to you because you never did what I told you to do. It's clear to anyone watching would be another way of saying it. I was never a king to you. You were never a subject to me. Because you never try to obey my rules. So the basis for the rejection is not their lawlessness. It's, it's not knowing him. We didn't have that type of relationship. I never knew you as evidenced by the life you lived. That's, that's Jesus' rationale here. The proof of him not knowing him is the lawless lies, lives they lived. So... We move on to James's final point. 
The royal law's unified hold, which is backing up his point. You're, if, if you're willfully holding back, man, you are, you, you're a transgressor, you're a lawbreaker, you're a rebel. If you're willfully holding back, a totally different story. I'm trying to obey my king and I keep failing. Oh, that's a totally different case. But if you're holding out in your life some area you know God wants, you know that is wrong, and you're somehow telling yourself, it's okay that I keep this area because I do all these other things, man, you need to listen to the fact that you are a lawbreaker. You're guilty. You're convicted. You're a transgressor of the law. Verse 12 and 13, back to addressing them directly. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So, a couple points. We will be judged under the royal law. We will be judged. We will all be judged under the royal law. Again, this is something I don't think we keep in our minds that often. That's why James has to remind us of it. The, the argument here, his final argument about the relationship between partiality and the royal law, or freeing law, is that if you can keep in your mind, remind yourself, be aware of the fact you're, you're facing a judgment where this law will judge you, you might live differently. You're going to speak differently. You're going to act differently. That's the argument. So let's try to understand. What does that mean? What doesn't it mean? We will all be judged under the royal law. Christ's law frees us to obey in the spirit. The first point is this is a different type of law than Moses. Christ's ethic, his demands free us. Jesus speaks of it this way in Matthew eleven twenty eight: Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. He does have a yoke. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. But he has a yoke. It's a light yoke. But a yoke nonetheless. It's a law. It's a freeing liberty law, James calls it. It's a law nevertheless. Jesus speaks of it that way. Galatians 5, we already heard that. If you walk in the spirit against this, it's it's an internalized law. We evidence our nature. We we aren't looking to a huge list of commands. We're loving our neighbors, ourselves. We're loving God with all of our heart, souls, and mind. We're walking in the spirit, and there's a freedom to it. Point B, justified and forgiven believers still face judgment. Jesus insisted on this, did he not? Every idle word will be given an account. The apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 5 So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We can forget about this. Now we, let's let's be careful what we're saying, what we're not saying. There's a great white throne judgment where heaven and hell is at stake. We, we, We need fear not that judgment. We've been declared innocent, righteous, son, daughter, beloved. But there's a Bema seat judgment, a reward judgment, maybe a, maybe a household family judgment, maybe an inside the family type of thing that we will all stand before. And our deeds and our faithfulness and our faithlessness will be shown and there'll be an accounting and there'll be a reckoning and there'll be a reward Jesus makes that clear, Paul makes that clear, and now James makes that clear. We don't generally, these aren't things we generally like sing songs about or 
make memory verses as. But James suggested if we keep that in our mind, we might live and act differently. That's why I've spent so much time trying to talk about this nature of law, because I, I don't normally think that way. I'm sure many of you don't. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so Paul, so James here says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. How, how were, you, were you loving your neighbors yourself? Were you loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind? It's this pretty straightforward law. It's not 611 specific things. Were you walking in the Spirit? Loving your neighbor? Loving God? And, and you won't fear wrath. You won't fear punishment. I was talking to Pastor Daniel this morning about it. It'll be tied up in variegated rewards. But I can't help but think that when the Lord shows my idle words in that moment, inside the family, knowing I'm accepted, I can't help but think I won't feel a little bit of shame, a little tinge of regret. I, I don't know how this is all going to play out. There, there's no wrath for God's children. There is no condemnation. But there's going to be a reckoning within the family of rewards, a beam of seat judgment, where everything we've done We'll have a fitting response. I don't know what that fitting response is, but I know that for myself, as I remind myself of this, I, I do live differently. I do act differently. This is not unique to James. Paul says the same thing. Then he makes a final statement, which is, which is even more alarming. And judgment is without mercy. To the one who shows no mercy. What's he saying there? Um, I, I think he's saying something very similar to what Jesus said. If you're still in Matthew, let's take a look at Matthew chapter 6. How did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? I don't think James is doing anything Jesus didn't directly teach. I don't think there's anything innovative here. I think James, as he's been doing this whole time, is, is reapplying, reteaching Relaying out what Jesus taught in his earthly ministry. Matthew 6, verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For... If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Whoa. King Jesus tells his would-be followers, if you don't forgive others, don't expect forgiveness. Not don't expect. Sorry, that's too weak. If you don't forgive others, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. No, he says that plainly. I, I, I just weakened it. I don't want to weaken it. Judgment will be out mercy to the merciless. Um, go to chapter 18 of Matthew. Again, these are, these are notes in the teaching of Jesus that we can sometimes pass over. And so I, I, I want to show that there is absolute continuity between what our Lord said and what James is saying James 18, 
And we don't need to read the whole parable. You know the parable of the unforgiving servant. He's forgiven by his master a great debt. And then he goes and he tries to choke and strangle someone who owes him far less. Well, let's pick it up in verse 32. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And you should not have had, should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. But in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all the debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So when James says judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, I think he's saying something similar here. Which is to say he's moving right into his faith and works description. You show your faith by what you do. You show your relationship to the Father as you bear out his character. People that don't bear out his character aren't his kids. And people who aren't his kids aren't going to get mercy. That's the, that's the rationale, the logic here. The, the logic here is genuine believers will show mercy, and so genuine believers will receive mercy. And those who don't show mercy are not believers, and therefore will not receive mercy. That, that's, the, that's the logic here. He's, he's moving right into his discussion of faith and works. Judgment is not mercy for the merciless. And I'm just trying to show you this is exactly what Jesus taught. You don't forgive others? Take it on Jesus' authority. God will not forgive you. Full stop. You don't show mercy? You won't receive mercy. Full stop. But the good news, and we're going to be singing our closing song in celebration of this, is that mercy triumphs over justice. If you are a broken, weak, failing child of God, striving to show mercy imperfectly, inconsistently, with relapses, you can take comfort that mercy triumphs over judgment. It's not that God's going to measure how much mercy you gave. and then get, No, if, if you're trying to give mercy, if you're trying to obey, God's mercy triumphs over judgment. That's, that's the good news. We're not earning his forgiveness but we absolutely are accountable to a real standard. There will be a reckoning, a balancing of scales. There will be a bema seat judgment. We must all stand before. And those who show none of their father's character, those who don't evidence the fruit of the spirit, will not receive mercy, not because it's a works judgment, because that will be the proof they weren't God's children. Because faith is seen by its works. So I'm going to call the worship team up. Let's close in a word of prayer. And let us commit to not be lawbreakers and transgressors, but try to be faithful subjects of King Jesus. Lord God, help us not to, do not allow us to pick and choose which of your commandments we will obey and thereby destroy our relationship. Rather, let us accept our identity as your sons, as your subjects, and let us strive imperfectly, failingly, inconsistently, but let us strive to full obedience. Let's pursue it. Let us keep in mind that our faithfulness or faithlessness will be measured one day. We will be judged by the law of loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind and loving our neighbor as ourselves. The day will bring it to light. Let us therefore speak 
and act in ways that evidence we are aware of this. We are living, looking forward towards this, not to earn or curry favor with you, but because we have been forgiven, we have been accepted, we have been redeemed, because we are your family, and we delight in bearing out the nature of our Father, his character and his delights. So let us not show partiality among ourselves, but celebrate the reality that mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen.